Hi, everybody. Carla here. Welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. Let's continue with Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. This is segment three. The party broke up into little separate knots. The storm had ceased, and I followed Charlotte into the ballroom. On the way, she said, The game banished their fears of the storm. I could make no reply. I myself, she continued, was as much frightened as any of them, but by affecting courage to keep up the spirits of the others, I forgot my apprehensions. We went to the window. It was still thundering at a distance. A soft rain was pouring down over the country and filled the air around us with delicious odors. Charlotte leaned forward on her arm. Her eyes wandered over the scene. She raised them to the sky and then turned them upon me. They were moistened with tears. She placed her hand on mine and said, Klopstock. At once I remembered the magnificent ode which was in her thoughts. I felt oppressed with the weight of my sensations and sank under them. I bent over her hand, kissed it in a stream of delicious tears, and again looked up to her eyes. Divine Klopstock, why didst thou not see thy apotheosis in those eyes? And thy name so often profaned, would that I never heard it repeated. June 19. I no longer remember where I stopped in my narrative. I only know it was two in the morning when I went to bed. And if you had been with me, that I might have talked instead of writing to you, I should in all probability have kept you up till daylight. I think I have not yet related what happened as we rode home from the ball, nor have I time to tell you now. It was a most magnificent sunrise. The whole country was refreshed, and the rain fell drop by drop from the trees in the forest. Our companions were asleep. Charlotte asked me if I did not wish to sleep also and begged of me not to make any ceremony on her account. Looking steadfastly at her, I answered, as long as I see those eyes open, there is no fear of my falling asleep. We both continued awake till we reached her door. The maid opened it softly and assured her in answer to her inquiries that her father and the children were well and still sleeping. I left her, asking my permission to visit her in the course of the day. She consented, and I went, and since that time, sun, moon, and stars may pursue their course. I know not whether it is day or night. The whole world is nothing to me. June 21. My days are as happy as those reserved by God for his elect, and whatever my fate may be hereafter, I can never say that I have not tasted joy, the purest joy of life. You know, Volheim, I am not completely settled there. In that spot, I am only half a league from Charlotte. And there, I enjoy myself and taste all the pleasure which can fall to the lot of man. Little did I imagine when I selected Volheim for my pedestrian excursions that all heaven lay so near it. How often in my wanderings from the hillside or from the meadows across the river have I beheld this hunting lodge, which now contains within it all the joys of my heart. I have often, my dear Wilhelm, reflected on the eagerness men feel to wonder and make new discoveries, and upon that secret impulse which afterward inclines them to return to their to their narrow circle, conform to the laws of custom, and embarrass themselves no longer with what passes around them. 
It is so strange how, when I came here first and gazed upon that lovely valley from the hillside, I felt charmed with the entire scene surrounding me. The little wood opposite, how delightful to sit under its shade, how fine the view from that point of rock. Then that delightful chain of hills and the exquisite valleys at their feet, could I but wander and lose myself amongst them? I went and returned without finding what I wished. Distance, my friend, is like futurity. A dim vastness is spread before our souls. The perceptions of our mind are as obscure as those of our vision, and we desire earnestly to surrender up our whole being, that it may be filled with the complete and perfect bliss of one of glorious emotion. But alas, when we have, when we have attained our object— when the distant there becomes the present here, all is changed. We are as poor and circumscribed as ever, and our souls still languish from unattainable happiness. So does the restless traveler pant for his native soil and find in his own cottage, in the arms of his wife, in the affections of his children, and in the labor necessary for their support, that happiness which he had sought in vain through the wide world. When, in the morning at sunrise, I go out to Valheim and with my own hands gather in the garden the peas which are to serve for my dinner, when I sit down to shell them, I read my homer during the intervals, and then, selecting a saucepan from the kitchen, fetch my own butter, put my mess on the fire, cover it up, and sit down to stir it as occasion requires, I figure to myself the illustrious suitors of Penelope, killing, dressing, and preparing their own oxen and swine. Nothing fills me with a more pure and genuine sense of happiness than those traits of patriarchal life which, thank heaven, I can imitate without affectation. Happy it is indeed for me that my heart is capable of feeling the same simple and innocent pleasure as the peasant whose table is covered with food of his own rearing, and who not only enjoys his meal, but remembers with delight the happy days and sunny mornings when he planted it, the soft evenings when he watered it, and the pleasure he experienced, he experienced in watching its daily growth. June 29. The day before yesterday, the physician came from the town to pay a visit to the judge. He found me on the floor playing with Charlotte's children. Some of them were scrambling over me and others romped with me, and as I caught and tickled them, they made a great noise. The doctor is a formal sort of personage. He adjusts the plaits of his ruffles and continually settles his frill whilst he is talking to you, and he thought my conduct beneath the dignity of a sensible man. I could perceive this by his countenance, but I did not suffer myself to be disturbed. I allowed him to continue his wise conversation whilst I rebuilt the children's card houses for them as fast as they threw them down. He went about the town afterward, complaining that the judge's children were spoiled enough before, but that now Werther was completely ruin ruining them. Yes, my dear Wilhelm. Wilhelm. Nothing on this earth affects my heart so much as children. When I look on at their doings, when I mark in the little creatures the seeds of all those virtues and qualities which they will one day find so indispensable, when I behold the obstinate, all the future firmness and constancy of a noble character, and the capricious that levity and gaiety of temper, which will carry them lightly over the dangers and troubles of life, their whole nature simple and unpolluted. Then I call to mind the golden words of the great teacher of mankind, unless ye become like one of these. 
And now, my friend, these children who are our equals, whom we ought to consider as our models, we treat them as though they were our subjects. They are allowed no will of their own. And have we then none ourselves? Whence comes our exclusive right? Is it because we are older and more experienced? Great God, from the height of thy heaven thou beholdest great children and little children and no others. And thy son has long since declared which afford thee greatest pleasure. But they believe in him and not hear him. That too is an old story, and they train their children after their own image, etc. Adieu, Wilhelm. I will not further bewilder myself with this subject. July 1. The consolation Charlotte can bring to an invalid I experience from my own heart, which suffers more from her presence than many a poor creature lingering on a bed of sickness. She is gone to spend a few days in the town with a very worthy woman who is given over by the physicians and wishes to have Charlotte near her in her last moments. I accompanied her last week on a visit to the vicar of S., a small village in the mountains, about a league hence. We arrived four o'clock. Charlotte had taken her little sister with her. When we entered the vicarage court, we found the good old man sitting on a bench before the door under the shade of two large walnut trees. At the sight of Charlotte, he seemed to gain a new life, rose, forgot his stick, and ventured to walk toward her. She ran to him and made him sit down again. Then, placing herself by his side, she gave him a number of messages from her father and then caught up his youngest child, a dirty, ugly little thing, the joy of his old age, and kissed it. I wish you could have witnessed her attention to this old man, how she raised her voice on account of his deafness, how she told him of healthy young people who had been carried off when it was least expected, praised the virtues of Carlsbad and commended his determination to spend the ensuing summer there and assured him that he looked better and stronger than he did when she saw him last. I, in the meantime, paid attention to his, to his good lady. The old man seemed quite in spirits, and as I could not help admiring the beauty of the walnut trees, which formed such an agreeable shade over our heads, he began, though with some difficulty, to tell us their history. As to the oldest, he said, we do not know who planted it. Some say one clergyman and some another, but the younger one there behind us is exactly the age of my wife, fifty years old next October." Her father planted it in the morning, and in the evening she came into the world. My wife's father was my predecessor here, and I cannot tell you how fond he was of that tree, and it is fully as dear to me. Under the shade of that very tree upon a log of wood, my wife was seated knitting when I, a poor student, came into this court for the first time just seven and twenty years ago. Charlotte inquired for his daughter. He said she was gone with her, with Herr Schmidt, to the meadows, and was with the haymakers. The old man then resumed his story and told us how his predecessor had taken a fancy to him and had his daughter likewise, and how he had become first his curate and subsequently his successor. He had scarcely finished his story when his daughter returned through the garden, accompanied by the above-mentioned Herr Schmidt. She welcomed Charlotte affectionately, and I confess I was much taken with her appearance. She was a lively-looking, good-humored brunette, quite competent to amuse one for a short time in the country. Her lover, for such Herr Schmidt evidently appeared to be, was a polite, reserved personage and would not join our conversation, notwithstanding all Charlotte's endeavors to draw him out. 
I was much annoyed at observing by his countenance that his silence did not arise from want of talent, but from caprice and ill humor. This subsequently became very evident when we set out to take a walk, and Frederica joining Charlotte, with whom I was talking, the worthy gentleman's face, which was naturally rather somber, became so dark and angry that Charlotte was obliged to touch my arm and remind me that I was talking too much to Frederica. Nothing distresses me more than to see men torment each other, particularly when in the flower of their age and the very season of pleasure, they waste their few short days of sunshine and quarrels and disputes and only perceive their error when it is too late to repair it. This thought dwelt upon my mind, and in the evening when we returned to the vicar's and were sitting around the table with our bread and milk, the conversation turned on the joys and sorrows of the world. I could not resist the temptation to inveigh bitterly against ill humor. We are apt, said I, to complain, but with very little cause that our happy days are few and our evil days many. If our hearts were always disposed to receive the benefits heaven sends us, we should acquire strength to support evil when it comes. But, observed the vicar's wife, we cannot always command our tempers. So much depends upon the constitution. When the body suffers, the mind is ill at ease. I acknowledge that. I continued, but we must consider such a disposition in the light of a disease and inquire whether there is no remedy for it. I should be glad to hear one, said Charlotte. At least I think very much depends upon ourselves. I know it is so with me. With anything, when anything annoys me and disturbs my temper, I hasten into the garden, hum a couple of country dances, and it is all right with me directly. This is what I meant. I replied, ill humor resembles indolence. It is natural to us. But if once we have courage to exert ourselves, we find our work run fresh from our hands and we experience in the activity from which we shrink a real enjoyment. Frederica listened very attentively and the young men and the young man objected that we were not masters of ourselves and still less so of our feelings. The question is about a disagreeable feeling. I added, from which every one would willingly escape, but none know their own power without trial. Invalids are glad to consult physicians and submit to the most scrupulous regimen, the most nauseous medicines, in order to recover their health. I observed that the good old man inclined his head and exerted himself to hear our discourse, so I raised my voice and addressed myself directly to him. We preach against a great many crimes, I observed, but I never remember a sermon delivered against ill humor. That may do very well for your town, clergyman, said he. Country people are never ill-humored, though indeed it might be useful occasionally, to my wife, for instance, and the judge. We all laughed, as did he likewise very cordially, till he fell into a fit of coughing which interrupted our conversation for a time. Herr Schmidt resumed the subject. You call ill humor a crime, he remarked, but I think you use too strong a term. Not at all, I replied, if that deserves the name which is so pernicious to ourselves and our neighbors. Is it not enough that we want the power to make one another happy? Must we deprive each other of the pleasure which we can all make for ourselves? Show me the man who has the courage to hide his ill humor, who bears the whole burden himself without disturbing the peace of those around him. No, ill humor arises from an inward consciousness of our own want of merit, from a discontent which ever accompanies that envy which foolish vanity engenders. We see people happy whom we have not made so and cannot endure the sight. 
Charlotte looked at me with a smile. She observed the emotion with which I spoke, and a tear in the eyes of Frederica stimulated me to proceed. Woe unto those, I said, who use their power over a human heart to destroy the simple pleasures it would naturally enjoy. All the flavors, all the attention in the world cannot compensate for the loss of that happiness which a cruel tyranny has destroyed. My heart was full as I spoke. A recollection of many things which had happened pressed upon my mind and filled my eyes with tears. We should daily repeat to ourselves, I exclaimed, that we should not interfere with our friends unless to leave them in possession of their own joys and increase their happiness by sharing it with them. But when their souls are tormented by a violent passion or their hearts rent with grief, it is is it in your power to afford them the slightest consolation? And when the last fatal malady seizes the being whose untimely grave you have prepared, when she lies languid and exhausted before you, her dim eyes raised to heaven and the damp of death upon her pallid brow, there you stand at her bedside like a condemned criminal with the bitter feeling that your whole fortune could not save her, and the agonizing thought rings you that all your efforts are powerless to impart even a moment's strength to the departing soul, or quicken her with a transistory consolation. At these words, the remembrance of a similar scene at which I had been once present fell with full force upon my heart. I buried my face in my handkerchief and hastened from the room and was only recalled to my recollection by Charlotte's voice, who reminded me that it was time to return home. With that tenderness, she chid me on the way for the too eager interest I took in everything. She declared it would do me injury and that I ought to spare myself. Yes, my angel, I will do so for your sake. July 6. She is still with her dying friend and is still the same bright, beautiful creature whose presence softens pain and sheds happiness around whichever way she turns. She went out yesterday with her little sisters. I knew it and went to meet them, and we walked together. In about an hour and a half, we returned to the town. We stopped at the spring I am so fond of, and which is now a thousand times dearer to me than ever. Charlotte seated herself upon the low wall, and we gathered about her. I looked around and recalled the time when my heart was unoccupied and free. Dear fountain, I said, since that time I have no more come to enjoy cool repose by thy fresh stream. I have passed thee with careless steps and scarcely bestowed a glance upon thee. I looked down and observed Charlotte's little sister Jane coming up the steps with a glass of water. I turned toward Charlotte and I felt her influence over me. Jane at that moment approached with the glass. Her sister Marianne wished to take it from her. No, cried the child with the sweetest expression of face. Charlotte must drink first. The affection and simplicity with, with which this was uttered so charmed me that I sought to express my feelings by catching up the child and kissing her heartily. She was frightened and began to cry. You should not do that, said Charlotte. I felt perplexed. Come, Jane. She continued, taking her hand and leading her down the steps again. It is no matter. Wash yourself quickly in the fresh water. I stood and watched them, and when I saw the little deer rubbing her cheeks with her wet hands in full belief that all the impurities contracted from my ugly beard would be washed off by the miraculous water, and how, though Charlotte said it would do, she continued still to wash with all her might, as though she thought too much were better than too little. 
I assure you, Wilhelm, I never attended a baptism with greater reverence, and when Charlotte came up from the well, I could have prostrated myself as before the prophet of an Eastern nation. In the evening, I would not resist telling the story to a person who, I thought, possessed some natural feeling because he was a man of understanding. But what a mistake I made! He maintained it was very wrong of Charlotte that we should not deceive children, that such things occasioned countless mistakes and superstitions from which we were bound to protect the young. It occurred to me then that this very man had been baptized only a week before. So I said nothing further, but maintained the justice of my own convictions. We should deal with children as God deals with us. We are happiest under the influence of innocent delusions. July 8. What a child is man that he should be so solicitous about a look. What a child man is. We had been to Valheim. The ladies went in a carriage, but during our walk, I thought I saw Charlotte's dark eyes. I am a fool, but forgive me. You should see them, those eyes. However, to be brief, for my own eyes are weighted down with sleep, you must know, when the lady stepped into their carriage again, young W. Seltstadt, Andren, and I were standing about the door. They are a merry set of fellows, and they were all laughing and joking together. I watched Charlotte's eyes. They wandered from one to the other, but they did not light on me on me who stood there motionless and who saw nothing but her. My heart bade her a thousand times adieu, but she noticed me not. The carriage drove off and my eyes filled with tears. I looked after her. Suddenly I saw Charlotte's bonnet leaning out of the window and she turned to look back. Was it at me? My dear friend, I know not. And in this uncertainty, I find consolation. Perhaps she turned to look at me. Perhaps... Good night. What a child I am. July 10. You should see how foolish I look in company when her name is mentioned, particularly when I am asked plainly how I like her. How I like her. I detest the phrase. What sort of creature must he be who merely liked Charlotte, whose whole heart and senses were not entirely absorbed by her? Like her. Someone asked me lately how I liked Ossian. July 11. Madame M. is very ill. I pray for her recovery because Charlotte shares my feelings. I see her occasionally at my friend's house, and today she has told me the strangest circumstance. Old M. is a covetous, miserly fellow who has long worried and annoyed the poor lady sadly, but she has borne her afflictions patiently. A few days ago, when the physician informed us that her recovery was hopeless, she sent for her husband. Charlotte was present and addressed him thus. I have something to confess, which after my decease may occasion trouble and confusion. I have hitherto conducted your household as frugally and economically as possible, but you must pardon me for having defrauded you for thirty years. At the commencement of our married life, you allowed a small sum for the wants of the kitchen and the other household expenses. When our establishment increased and our property grew larger, I could not persuade you to increase the weekly allowance in proportion. In short, you know that when our wants, when our wants were greatest, you required me to supply everything with seven florins a week. I took the money from you without an observation, but made up the weekly deficiency from the money chest, as nobody would suspect your wife of robbing the household bank. But I have wasted nothing, and should have been content to meet my eternal judge without this confession, if she, upon whom the management of your establishment will devolve after my decease, would be free from embarrassment upon your insisting that she, 
upon your insisting that the allowance made to me, your former wife, was not sufficient. I talked with Charlotte of the inconceivable manner in which men allow themselves to be blinded, how anyone could avoid suspecting some deception when seven florins only were allowed to defray expenses twice as great. But I have myself known people who believed, without any visible astonishment, that their house possessed the prophet's never-failing cursed cruise of oil. July 13. No, I am not deceived. In her dark eyes, I read a genuine interest in me and in my fortunes. Yes, I feel it, and I may believe my own heart, which tells me, dare I say it, dare I pronounce the divine words, that she loves me, that she loves me. How the idea exalts me in my own eyes. And as you can understand my feelings, I may say to you how I honor myself since she loves me. Is this presumption or is it a consciousness of the truth? I do not know a man able to supplant me in the heart of Charlotte. And yet when she speaks of her betrothed with so much warmth and affection, I feel like the soldier who has been stripped of his honors and titles and deprived of his sword. July 16. How my heart beats when by accident I touch her finger or my feet meets hers under the table. I draw back as if it were from I draw back as if from a furnace, but a secret force impels me toward it again, and my senses become disordered. Her innocent, unconscious heart never knows what agony these little familiarities inflict upon me. Sometimes when we are talking, she lays her hand upon mine, and in the eagerness of conversation comes closer to me, and her balmy breath reaches my lips when I feel as if lightning had struck me and that I could sink into the earth. And yet, Wilhelm, with all this heavenly confidence, if I know myself and should ever dare, you understand me. No, no, my my heart is not so corrupt. It is weak, weak enough, but it is not that a degree of corruption. She is to me a sacred being. All passion is still in her presence. I cannot express my sensations when I am near her. I feel as if my soul beat in every nerve of my body. There is a melody which she plays on the, on the piano with angelic skill. So simple it is, and yet so spiritual. It is her favorite air. And when she plays the first note, all pain, care, and sorrow disappear from me in a moment. I believe every word that is said of the magic of ancient music. How her simple song enchants me. Sometimes when I am ready to commit suicide, she sings the air, and instantly the gloom and madness which hung over me are dispersed, and I breathe freely again. July 18. Wilhelm, what is the world to our hearts without love? What is a magic lantern without light? You have but to kindle the flame within, and the brightest figure shine on the white wall, and if love only show us fleeting shadows, we are yet happy when, like mere children, we behold them and are transported with the splendid phantoms. I have not been able to see Charlotte today. I was prevented by company from which I could not disengage myself. What was to be done? I sent my servant to her house that I might at least see somebody today who has seen or been near her. Oh, the impatience with which I waited for his return, the joy with which I would welcome him. I should certainly have caught him in my arms, kissed him, and, and if I had not been ashamed. It is said that the Bonoma stone 
when placed in the sun, attracts the rays and for a time appears luminous in the dark. So it was with me and the servant, the idea that Charlotte's eyes had dwelt upon his countenance, his cheek, his very apparel, endeared them all inestimably to me, so that at the moment I would not have parted from him for a thousand crowns. His presence made me so happy. Beware of laughing at me, Wilhelm. That can be a delusion which makes us happy. August 28. If my ills would admit of any cure, they would certainly be cured here. This is my birthday, and early in the morning I received a packet from Albert. Upon opening it, I found one of the pink ribbons which Charlotte wore in her dress the first time I saw her, and which I had several times asked her to give to me. With it were two volumes in Duodecimo of Westine's Homer, a book I had often wished for to save me the inconvenience of carrying the large Ernestine edition with me upon my walks. You see how they anticipate my wishes, how well they understand all those little attentions of friendship, so superior to the costly presents of the great, which are humiliating. I kissed the ribbon a thousand times and in every breath inhaled the irrevocable days which filled me with such keen joy. Such, Wilhelm, is our fate. I do not murmur at it. The flowers of life are but visionary. How many pass away and leave no trace behind? How few yield any fruit? And the fruit itself, how rarely does it ripen? And yet there are flowers enough. And it is not strange, and is it not strange, my friend, that we should suffer the little that does really ripen to rot, decay, and perish unenjoyed? Farewell, this is a glorious summer. I often climb into the trees in Charlotte's orchard and shake down the pears that hang on the highest branches. She stands below and catches them as they fall. August 30. Unhappy being that I am. Why do I thus deceive myself? What is to come of all this wild, aimless, endless passion? I cannot pray except to her. My imagination sees nothing but her. All surrounding objects are of no account except as they relate to her. In this dreamy state, I enjoy many happy hours till at length I feel compelled to tear myself away from her. Ah, Wilhelm, to what does not my heart often compel me? When I have spent several hours in her company till I feel completely absorbed by her figure, her grace, the divine expression of her thoughts, my mind becomes gradually excited to the highest excess. My sight grows dim, my hearing confused, my breathing oppressed as if by the hand of a murderer, and my beating heart seeks to obtain relief from my aching senses. I am sometimes unconscious whether I really exist." If in such moments I find no sympathy and Charlotte does not allow me to enjoy the melancholy, the melancholy consolation of bathing her hand with my tears, I feel compared to tear myself from her when I either wander through the country, climb some precipitous cliff, or force a path through the trackless thicket where I am lacerated and torn by thorns and briars, and thence I find relief. Sometimes I lie stretched on the ground, overcome with fatigue and dying with thirst. Sometimes late in the night when the moon shines above me, I recline against an aged tree in some sequestered forest to rest my weary limbs. When exhausted and worn, I still I, I sleep till break of day. Oh, Wilhelm, the hermit's cell, his sackcloth and girdle of thorns would be luxury and indulgence compared to what I suffer. Adieu, I see no end to this wretchedness except the grave. September 3. I must away. Thank you, Wilhelm, for determining my wavering purpose. For a whole fortnight I have thought of leaving her. 
I must away. She has returned to town and is at the house of a friend. And then, Albert, yes, I must go. September 10. Oh, what a night, Wilhelm. I can henceforth bear anything. I shall never see her again. Oh, why cannot I fall on your neck and with flood of tears and raptures give utterance to all the passions with passions which distract my heart? Here I sit gasping for breath and struggling to compose myself. I wait for a day and at sunrise the horses are to be at the door and she is sleeping calmly, little suspecting that she has sent me for the last, little suspecting that she has seen me for the last time. I am free. I have had the courage in an interview of two hours duration not to betray my intention. And oh, Wilhelm, what a conversation it was. Albert had promised to come to Charlotte in the garden immediately after supper. I was upon the terrace under the tall chestnut trees and watched the setting sun. I saw him sink for the last time beneath this delightful valley and silent stream. I had often visited the same spot with Charlotte and witnessed that glorious sight. And now... I was walking up and down the very avenue which was so dear to me. A secret sympathy had frequently drawn me thither before I knew Charlotte, and we were delighted when, in our early acquaintance, we discovered that we each loved the same spot, which is indeed as romantic as any that ever captivated the fancy of an artist. From beneath the chestnut trees there is an extensive view, but I remember that I have mentioned all this in a former letter and have described the tall mass of beech trees at the end and how the avenue grows darker and darker as it winds its way among them till it ends in a gloomy recess which has all the charm of a mysterious solitude. I still remember the strange feeling of melancholy that came over me the first time I entered that dark retreat at bright midday. I felt some secret foreboding that it would one day be to me the scene of some happiness or misery. I had spent half an hour struggling between the contending thoughts of going and returning when I heard them coming up the terrace. I ran to meet them. I trembled as I took her hand and kissed it, and we reached the top of the terrace. The moon rose from behind the wooded hill. We conversed on many subjects and, without perceiving it, approached the gloomy recess. Charlotte entered and sat down. Albert seated himself beside her. I did the same, but my agitation did not suffer me to remain seated long. I got up and stood before her, then walked backward and forward and sat down again. I was restless and miserable. Charlotte drew our attention to the beautiful effect of the moonlight, which threw a silver hue over the terrace in front of us, beyond the beech trees. It was a glorious sight and, and was rendered more striking by the darkness which surrounded the spot where we were. We remained for some time silent when Charlotte observed, Whenever I walk by moonlight, it brings to my remembrance all the beloved and departed friends, and I am filled with thoughts of death and futurity. We shall live again, further, she continued with a firm but feeling voice. But shall we know one another again? What do you think? What do you say? Charlotte, I said, as I took her hand in mine and my eyes filled with tears, we shall see each other again here and hereafter. We shall meet again. I could say no more. Why, Wilhelm, should she put this question to me just at the moment when the fear of our cruel separation filled my heart? And oh, do these departed ones know how we are employed here? Do they know when we are well or happy? Do they know when we recall their memories with the fondest love? In the silent hour of evening, the shade of my mother hovers around me. When seated in the midst of my children, I see them assembled 
near me as they used to assemble near her, and then I raise my anxious eyes to heaven and wish she could look down upon us and witness how I fulfilled the promise I made to her in her last moments to be a mother to her children. With what emotion do I then exclaim, Pardon, dearest of mothers, pardon me if I do not adequately supply your place. Alas, I do my utmost. They are clothed and fed, and still better, they are loved and educated. Could you but see, sweet saint, the peace and harmony that dwells amongst us, you would glorify God with the warmest feelings of gratitude to whom in your last hour you address such fervent prayers for our happiness. Thus did she express herself, but, O oh, Wilhelm, who can do justice to her language? How can cold how can cold and passionless words convey the heavenly expressions of the spirit? Albert interrupted her gently. This affects you too deeply, my dear Charlotte. I know your soul dwells on such recollections with intense delight, but I implore. Oh, Albert, she continued, I am sure you do not forget the evenings when we three used to sit at the little round table when Papa was absent and the little ones had retired. You often had a good book with you, but seldom read it. The conversation of that noble being was preferable to everything, that beautiful, bright, gentle, and yet ever toiling woman. God alone knows how I have supplicated with tears on my nightly couch that I might be like her. I threw myself at her feet and seizing her hand, bedewed it with a thousand tears. Charlotte, I exclaimed, God's blessing and your mother's spirit are upon you. Oh, that you had known her, she said with a warm pressure of the hand. She was worthy of being known to you. I thought I should have fainted. Never had I received praise so flattering, she continued. And yet she was doomed to die in the flower of her youth when her youngest child was scarcely six months old. Her illness was but short but she was calm and resigned, and it was only for her children, especially her youngest, that she felt unhappy. When her end drew nigh, she bade me bring them to her. I obeyed. The younger ones knew nothing of their approaching loss, while the elder ones were quite overcome with grief. They stood around the bed, and she raised her feeble hands to heaven and prayed over them. Then, kissing them in turn, she dismissed them and said to me, Be you a mother to them. I gave her my hand. You are promising much, my child, she said, a mother's fondness and a mother's care. I have often witnessed by your tears of gratitude that you know what it is to have a mother's tenderness. Show it to your brothers and sisters and be dutiful and faithful to your father as a wife. You will be his comfort. She inquired for him. He had retired to conceal his intolerable anguish. He was heartbroken. Albert, you were in the room. She heard someone she heard someone moving. She inquired who it was and desired you to approach. She surveyed us with a look of composure and satisfaction, expressive of her conviction that we should be happy, happy with one another. Albert fell upon her neck and kissed her and exclaimed, We are so and we shall so be. Even Albert, generally so tranquil, had quite lost his composure, and I was excited beyond expression. And such a being, she continued, was to leave us. Further, great God, must we thus part with everything we hold dear in this world? Nobody felt this more acutely than the children. They cried and lamented for a long time afterward, complaining that men had carried away their dear mamma. Charlotte rose. It aroused me, but I continued sitting and held her hand. Let us go, she said. It grows late. She attempted to withdraw her hand. I held it still. We shall see each other again. I exclaimed, we shall recognize each other under every possible change. I am going, I continued, going willingly, but 
Should I say forever, perhaps I may not keep my word. Adieu, Charlotte. Adieu, Albert. We shall meet again. Yes, tomorrow, I think, she answered with a smile. Tomorrow, how I felt the word. Ah, she little thought when she drew her hand away from mine. They walked down the avenue. I stood gazing after them in the moonlight. I threw myself upon the ground and wept. I then sprang up and ran out upon the terrace and saw, under the shade of the linden trees, her white dress disappearing near the garden gate. I stretched out my arms, and she vanished. Book Two, October 20. We arrived here yesterday. The ambassador is in is indisposed and will not go out for some days. If he were less peevish and morose, all would be well. I see, but too plainly that heaven has destined me to severe trials, but courage, a, a light heart may bear anything, a light heart. I smile to find such a word proceeding from my pen. A little more lightheartedness would render me the happiest being under the sun. But must I despair of my talents and faculties whilst others of far inferior abilities parade before me with utmost self-satisfaction? Gracious Providence, to whom I owe all my powers, why didst thou not withhold some of those blessings I possess and substitute in their place a feeling of self-confidence and contentment? But patience, all will yet be well, for I assure you, my dear friend, you were right. Since I have been obliged to associate continually with other people and observe what they do and how they employ themselves, I have become far better satisfied with myself, for we are so constituted by nature that we are never prone to compare that we are ever prone to compare ourselves with others and our happiness or misery depends very much on the objects of objects and persons around us on this account nothing is more dangerous than solitude there our imagination always disposed to rise taking a new flight on the wings of fancy pictures to us a chain of beings of whom we seem the most inferior all things appear greater than they really are, and all seem superior to us. This operation of the mind is quite natural. We so continually feel our own imperfections and fancy we perceive in others the qualities we do not possess, attributing to them also all that we enjoy ourselves, that by this process we form the idea of a perfect, happy man, a man, however, who only exists in our own imagination." But when, in spite of weakness and disappointments, we set to work in earnest and persevere steadily, we often find that, though obliged continually to tack, we make more than many others who have the assistance of wind and tide, and in truth, there can be no greater satisfaction than to keep pace with others or outstrip them in the race. November 26. I begin to find my situation here more tolerable, considering all circumstances. I find a great advantage in being much occupied, and the number of persons I meet and their different pursuits create a varied entertainment for me. I have formed the acquaintance of a Count C, and I esteem him more and more every day. He is a man of strong understanding and great discernment, but though he sees farther than other people, he is not on that account cold in his manner, but capable of inspiring and returning the warmest affection. He appeared interested in me on one occasion when I had to transact some business with him. He perceived at the first word that we understood each other and that he could converse with me in a different tone from what he used with others. 
I cannot sufficiently esteem his frank and esteem his frank and open kindness to me. It is the greatest and most genuine of pleasures to observe a great mind in sympathy with our own. December twenty four. As I anticipated, the ambassador occasions me infinite annoyance. He is the most punctilious blockhead under heaven. He does everything step by step with the trifling minuteness of an old woman, and he is a man whom it is impossible to please because he is never pleased with himself. I like to do business regularly and cheerfully, and when it is finished, to leave it. But he constantly returns to my papers to me saying, they will do but recommending me to look over them again, as one may always improve by using a better word or a more appropriate particle. I then lose all patience and wish myself at the devil's. Not a conjunction, not an adverb must be omitted. He has a deadly antipathy to all those transpositions of which I am so fond, and if the music of our periods is not tuned to the established official key, he cannot comprehend our meaning. It is deplorable to be connected with such a fellow. My acquaintance with the Count C is the only compensation for such an evil. He told me frankly the other day that he was much displeased with the difficulties and delays of the ambassador but people like him are obstacles both to themselves and to others. But, added he, one must submit, like a traveler who has to who has to ascend a mountain. If the mountain was not there, the road would be both shorter and pleasanter, but there it is, and he must get over it. The old man perceives the the old man perceives the count's partiality for me. This annoys him, and he seizes every opportunity to depreciate the count in my hearing. I naturally defend him, and that only makes matters worse. Yesterday he made me indignant, for he also alluded to me. The Count, he said, is a man of the world and a good man of business. His style is good, and he writes with facility, but, like other geniuses, he has no solid learning. He looked at me with an expression that seemed to ask if I felt the blow, but it did not produce the desired effect. I despise a man who, could, who can think and act in such a manner. However, I made a stand and answered with not a little warmth. The Count, I said, was a man entitled to respect, alike for his character and his acquirements. I had never met a person whose mind was stored with more useful and extensive knowledge, who had, in fact, mastered such an infinite variety of subjects, and who yet retained all his activity for the details of ordinary business. This was altogether beyond his comprehension, and I took my leave, lest my anger should be too highly excited by some new absurdity of his." And you are to blame for all this, you who persuaded me to bend my neck to this yoke by preaching a life of activity to me. If the man who plants vegetables and carries his corn to town on market days is not more usefully employed than I am, then let me work ten years longer at the galleys to which I am now chained. Oh, the brilliant wretchedness, the weariness that one is doomed to witness among the silly people whom we meet in society here. The ambition of rank how they watch, how they toil to gain precedence, what poor and contemptible passions are displayed in their utter nakedness. We have a woman here, for example, who never ceases to entertain the company with the counts of her family and her estates. Any stranger would consider her a silly being whose head was turned by her pretensions to rank and property. But she is in reality even more ridiculous, the daughter of a mere magistrate's clerk from this neighborhood. I cannot understand how human beings can so debase themselves. Every day I observe more and more the folly of judging of others by ourselves, and I have so much trouble with myself, and my own heart is in 
such constant agitation that I am well content to let others pursue their own course if they only allow me the same privilege. What provokes me most is the unhappy extent to which distinctions of rank are carried. I know perfectly well how necessary are inequalities of condition, and I am sensible of the advantages I myself derive therefrom. But I would not have these institutions prove a barrier to the small chance of happiness which I may enjoy on this earth. I have lately become acquainted with a Miss B, a very agreeable girl who has retained her natural manners in the midst of artificial life. Our first conversation pleased us both equally, and at taking leave, I requested permission to visit her. She consented in so obliging a manner that I waited with impatience for the arrival of the happy moment. She is not a native of this place, but resides here with her aunt. The countenance of the old lady is not prepossessing. I paid her much attention, addressing the greater part of my conversation to her, and less than half an hour later, I discovered what her niece subsequently acknowledged to me, that her aged aunt, having but a small fortune and a still smaller share of understanding, enjoys no satisfaction except in the pedigree of her ancestors, no protection save in her noble birth, and no enjoyment in and no enjoyment but in looking from her castle over the heads of the humble citizens. She was, no doubt, handsome in her youth, and in her early years probably trifled away her time in rendering many a poor youth the sport of her caprice. In her riper years, she has submitted to the yoke of a veteran officer who, in return for her person and her small independence, has spent with her what we may designate her age of brass. He is dead, and she is now a widow and deserted. She spends her iron age alone and would not be approached except for the loveliness of her niece. January 8, 1772. What beings are men whose whole thoughts are occupied with form and ceremony, who for years together devote their mental and physical exertions to the tasks of advancing themselves but one step and endeavoring to occupy a higher place at the table? Not that such persons would otherwise want employment. On the contrary, they give themselves much trouble by neglecting important business for such petty trifles. Last week, a question of precedence arose at a sledging party, and all our amusement was spoiled. The silly creatures cannot see that it is not it is not place which, consti which constitutes real greatness, since the man who occupies the first place but seldom plays the principal part. How many kings are governed by their ministers? How many ministers by their secretaries? Who, in such cases, is really the chief? He, as it seems to me, who can see through the others and possesses strength or skill enough to make their power or passion subservient to the execution of his own designs. January 20. I must write to you from this place, my dear Charlotte, from a small room in a country inn where I have taken shelter from a severe storm. During my whole residence in that wretched place, D, where I lived among strangers, strangers indeed to this heart, I never at any time felt the smallest inclination to correspond with you. But in this cottage, in this retirement, in this solitude, with the snow and hail beating against my lattice pane, you are my first thought. The instant I entered, your figure rose up before me, and the remembrance, oh, my Charlotte, the sacred, tender remembrance, gracious heaven, restored to me the happy moment of our first acquaintance. Could you but see me, my dear Charlotte, in the world of dissipation, how my senses are dried up, but my heart is at no time full. I enjoy no single moment of happiness. All is vain. Nothing touches me. 
I stand, as it were, before a rarey show. I see the little puppets move, and I ask whether it is not an optical illusion. I am amused with these puppets, or rather, I am myself one of them, but when I sometimes grasp my neighbor's hand, I feel that it is not natural, and I withdraw mine with a shudder. In the evening, I say, I will enjoy the next morning's sunrise, and yet I remain in bed. In the day, I promise to ramble by moonlight, and I nevertheless remain at home. I know not why I rise, nor why I go to sleep. The leaven which animated my existence is gone. The charm which cheered me in the gloom of night and aroused me from my morning slumbers is forever fled. I have found out but one thing being here to interest me, and Miss B, a Miss B, she resembles you, my dear Charlotte, if anyone can possibly resemble you. Ah, you will say, he has learned how to play fine. He has learned how to pay fine compliments. And this is partly true. I have been very agreeable lately, as it was not in my power to be otherwise. I have, moreover, a deal of wit, and the ladies say that no one understands flattery better, or falsehoods, you will add, since the one accomplishment invariably accompanies the other. But I must tell you of Miss B., she has abundance of soul, which flashes from her deep blue eyes. Her rank is a torment to her and satisfies no one desire of her heart. She would gladly retire from this whirl of fashion, and we often picture to ourselves a life of undisturbed happiness in distant scenes of rural retirement. And then we speak of you, my dear Charlotte, for she knows you and renders homage to your merits, to your merits, but her homage is not exacted, but voluntary. She loves you and delights to hear you made the subject of conversation. Oh, that I were sitting at your feet in your favorite little room with the dear children playing around us. If they became troublesome to you, I would tell them some appalling goblin story and they would crowd around me with silent attention. The sun is setting in its glory. His last rays are shining on the snow, which covers the face of the country. The storm is over, and I must return to my dungeon. Adieu. Is Albert with you? And what is he to you? God forgive the question. February 8. For a week past, we have had the most wretched weather. But this to me is a blessing, for during my residence here, not a single fine day has beamed from the heavens, but has been lost to me by the intrusion of somebody. During the severity of rain, sleet, frost, and storm, I congratulate myself that it cannot be worse indoors than abroad, nor worse abroad than it is within doors, and so I become reconciled. When the sun rises bright in the morning and promises a glorious day, I never omit to exclaim, There now, they have another blessing from heaven, which they will be sure to destroy. They spoil everything, health, fame, happiness, amusement, and they do this generally through folly, ignorance, or imbecility, and always, according to their own account, with the best intentions. I could often beseech them on my bended knees to be less resolved upon their own destruction. February 17. I fear that my ambassador and I shall not continue much longer together. He is really growing past endurance. He transacts his business in so ridiculous a manner that I am often compelled to contradict him and do things my own way. And then, of course, he thinks them very ill done. He complained of me lately on this account at court, and the minister gave me a reprimand, a gentle one, it is true, but still a reprimand. In consequence of this, I was about to tender my resignation, 
when I received a letter to which I submitted with great respect on account of the high, noble, and generous spirit which dictated it. He endeavored to soothe my excessive sensibility, paid a tribute to my extreme ideas of duty, of good example, and of perseverance in business as the fruit of my youthful ardor, an impulse which he did not seek to destroy, but only to moderate, that it might have proper play and be productive of good. So now I am at rest for another week and no longer at variance with myself. Content and peace of mind are valuable things. I could wish, my dear friend, that these precious jewels were less transistory. February 20. God bless you, my dear friends, and may he grant you that happiness which he denies to me. I thank you, Albert, for having deceived me. I waited for the news that your wedding day was fixed, and I intended on that day with solemnity to take down Charlotte's profile from the wall and to bury it with some other papers I possess. You are now united, and her picture still remains here. Well, let it remain. Why should it not? I know that I am still one of your society, that I still occupy a place uninjured in Charlotte's heart, that I hold the second place therein, and I intend to keep it. Oh, I should become mad if, if she could forget. Albert, that thought is hell. Farewell, Albert. Farewell, angel of heaven. Farewell, Charlotte. March 15. I have just had a sad adventure which will drive me away from here. I lose all patience. Death. It is not to be, it is not to be remedied. And you alone are to blame, for you urged and impelled me to fill a post which I was by no means suited. I, I have now reason to be satisfied, and so have you. But that you may not again attribute this fatality to my impetuous temper, I send you, my dear sir, a plain and simple narration of the affair, as more chronicler of facts would describe it. The Count of O likes and distinguishes me. It is well known, and I have mentioned this to you a hundred times. Yesterday I dined with him. It is the day on which the nobility are accustomed to assemble at his house in the evening. I never once thought of the assembly, nor that we subalterns did not belong to such society. Well, I dined with the Count, and after dinner we adjourned to the large hall. We walked up and down together, and I conversed with him and with Colonel B., who joined us, and in this manner the hour for the assembly approached. God knows I was thinking of nothing, when who should enter but the honorable lady accompanied by her noble husband and their silly scheming daughter with her small waist and flat neck, and with disdainful looks and a haughty air they passed me by. As I heartily detest the whole race, I determined upon going away, and only waited till the Count had disengaged himself from their impertinent prattle to take leave, when the agreeable Miss B. came in. As I never meet her without experiencing a heartfelt pleasure, I stayed and talked to her, leaning over the back of her chair, and did not perceive till some till after some time that she seemed a little confused, and ceased to answer me with her usual ease of manner. I was struck with it. Heavens, I said to myself, can she too be like the rest? I felt annoyed and was about to withdraw, but I remained notwithstanding, forming excuses for her conduct, fancying she did not mean it, and still hoping to receive some friendly recognition. The rest of the company now arrived. There was the Baron F. in an entire suit that dated from the coronation of Francis I, the Chancellor N. with his deaf wife, the shabbily dressed I, whose old-fashioned coat bore evidence of modern repairs. This crowned the whole. 
I conversed with some of my acquaintances, but they answered me laconically. I was engaged in observing Miss B and did not notice that the women were whispering at the end of the room, that the murmur extended by degrees to the men, that Madame S addressed the Count with much warmth. This was all related to me subsequently by Miss B, till at length the Count came up to me and took me to the window. You know our ridiculous customs, he said. I perceive the company is rather displeased at your being here. I would not on any account. I beg your excellency's pardon, I exclaimed. I ought, I ought to have thought of this before, but I know you will forgive this little inattention. I was going, I added, some time ago, but my evil genius detained me, and I smiled and bowed to take my leave. He shook me by the hand in a manner which expressed everything. I hastened at once from the illustrious assembly, sprang into a carriage, and drove to M., I contemplated the setting sun from the top of the hill and read that beautiful passage in Homer where Ulysses is entertained by the hospitable herdsman. This was indeed delightful. I returned home to supper in the evening, but few persons were assembled in the room. They had turned up a corner of the tablecloth and were playing at dice. The good-natured A came in. He laid down his hat when he saw me, approached me, and said in a low tone, "'You have met with a disagreeable adventure.' I, I exclaimed, the count obliged you to withdraw from the assembly. Deuce take the assembly, said I. I was very glad to be gone. I am delighted, he added, that you take it so lightly. I am only sorry that it is already so much spoken of. The circumstance then began to pain me. I fancied that everyone who sat down and even looked at me was thinking of this incident, and my heart became embittered. And now I could plunge a dagger into my bosom when I hear myself everywhere pitied and observe the triumph of my enemies who say that this is always the case with vain persons, whose heads are turned with conceit, who affect to despise forms and such petty idle nonsense." Say what you will of fortitude, but show me the man who can patiently endure the laughter of fools when they have obtained an advantage over him. Tis only when their nonsense is without foundation that one can suffer it without complaint. March 16. Everything conspires against me. I met Miss B. walking today. I could not help joining her, and when we were at a little distance from her companions, I expressed my sense of her altered manner toward me. Oh, further, she said in a tone of emotion. You, you who know my heart, how could you so ill interpret my distress, my distress? What did I not suffer for you from the moment you entered the room? I foresaw it all. A hundred times was I on the point of mentioning it to you. I knew that the S and the T with their husbands would quit the room rather than remain in your company. I knew that the Count would not break with them. And now so much is said about it. How, I exclaimed, and endeavored to conceal my emotion, for all that Adeline had mentioned to me yesterday recurred to me painfully at that moment. Oh, how much is ha it has already cost me, said this amiable girl, while her eyes filled with tears. I could scarcely contain myself and was ready to throw myself at her feet. Explain yourself, I cried. Tears flowed down her cheeks. I became quite frantic. She wiped them away without attempting to conceal them. You know my aunt, she continued. She was present. And in what light does she consider the affair? Last night and this morning, Berter, I was compelled to listen to a lecture upon my acquaintance with you. I have been obliged to hear you condemned and depreciated, and I could not, I dared not say much in your defense." Every word she uttered was a dagger to my heart. She did not feel what a mercy it would have been to conceal everything from me. 
She told me in addition all the impertinence that would be further circulated and how the malicious would triumph, how they would rejoice over the punishment of my pride, over my humiliation for that want of esteem for others with which I had often been reproached. To hear all this, Wilhelm, uttered by her voice in the most sincere sympathy, awakened all my passions, and I am still in a state of extreme excitement. I wish I could find a man to jeer me about this event. I would sacrifice him to my resentment. The sight of his blood might possibly be a relief to my fury. A hundred times have I seized a dagger to give ease to the oppressed heart. Naturalists tell of a noble race of horses that indistinctively open a vein with their teeth when heated and exhausted by a long course in order to breathe more freely. I am often tempted to open a vein to procure for myself everlasting liberty. March 24. I have tendered my resignation to the court. I hope it will be accepted and you will forgive me for not having previously consulted you. It is necessary I should leave this place. I know all you will urge me to, to stay and therefore I beg you will soften this news to my mother. I am unable to do anything for myself. How then should I be competent to assist others? It will afflict her that I should have interrupted that career which, have, which would have made me first a private counselor and then a minister, and that I should look behind me in place of advancing. Argue as you will, combine all the reasons which should have induced me to remain, I am going. That is sufficient, but that you may not be ignorant of my destination, I may mention that the Prince of is here. He is much pleased with my company, and having heard of my intention to resign, he has invited me to his country house to pass the spring months with him. I shall be left completely my own master, and as we agree on all subjects but one, I shall try my fortune and accompany him. April 19. Thanks for your letters. Thanks for both your letters. I delayed my reply and withheld this letter till I should obtain an answer from the court. I feared my mother might apply to the minister to defeat my purpose, but my request is granted. My resignation is accepted. I shall not recount with what reluctance it was accorded, nor relate what the minister has written. You would only renew your, lamenta your lamentations. The crown prince has sent me a present of five and twenty ducats, and indeed such goodness has affected me to tears. For this reason, I shall not require from my mother the money for which I lately applied. May 5. I leave this place tomorrow, and as my native place is only six miles from the high road, I intend to visit it once more and recall the happy dreams of my childhood. I shall enter at the same gate through which I came with my mother when, after my father's death, she left that delightful retreat to immure herself in your melancholy town. Adieu, my dear friend. You shall hear of my future career. May 9. I have paid my last visit to my native place with all the devotion of a pilgrim and have experienced many unexpected emotions. Near the great elm tree, which is a quarter of a league from the village, I got out of the carriage and sent it on before that alone and on foot I might enjoy vividly and heartily all the pleasure of my recollections. I stood there under that same elm which was formerly the term and object of my walks. How things have since changed. Then, in happy ignorance, I sighed for a world I did not know, where I hoped to find every pleasure and enjoyment which my heart could desire. And now, on my return from that wide world, oh, my friend, how many disappointed hopes and unsuccessful plans have I brought back? As I contemplated the mountains which lay stretched out before me, I thought how often they had been the object of my dearest desires. 
Here used I to sit for hours together with my eyes bent upon them, ardently longing to wander in the shade of those woods or to lose myself in those valleys which form so delightful an object in the distance. With what reluctance did I leave this charming spot when my hour of recreation was over and my leave of absence expired? I drew near to the village. All the well-known old summer houses and gardens were recognized again. I disliked the new ones and all the other alterations which had taken place. I entered the village and all my former feelings returned. I cannot, my dear friend, enter into details charming as charming as were my sensations. They would be dull in the narration. I had intended to lodge in the marketplace near our old house. As soon as I entered, I perceived that the schoolroom, where our childhood had been taught by that good old woman, was converted into a shop. I called to mind the sorrow, the heaviness, the tears, and oppression of heart which I experienced in that confinement. Every step produced some particular impression. A pilgrim in the Holy Land does not meet so many so many spots pregnant with tender recollections, pardon me, and his soul is hardly moved with greater devotion. One incident will serve for illustration. I followed the course of a stream to a farm formerly a delightful walk of mine, and paused at the spot where, when boys, we used to amuse ourselves making ducks and drakes upon the water. I recollected so well how I used formerly to watch the course of the same stream, following it with inquiring eagerness, forming romantic ideas of the countries it was to pass through. But my imagination was soon exhausted, while the water continued flowing farther and farther on till my fancy became bewildered by the contemplation of an invisible distance. Exactly such, my dear friend, so happy and so confined, were the thoughts of our good ancestors. Their feelings and their poetry were fresh as childhood. And when Ulysses talks of the immeasurable sea and boundless earth, his epithets are true, natural, deeply felt, and mysterious. Of what importance is it that I have learned with every schoolboy that the world is round? Man needs but little earth for enjoyment and still less for his final repose. I am at present with the prince at his hunting lodge. He is a man with whom one can live happily. He is honest and unaffected. There are, however, some strange characters about him whom I cannot at all understand. They do not seem vicious, and yet they do not carry the appearance of thoroughly honest men. Sometimes I am disposed to believe them honest, and yet I cannot persuade myself to confide in them. It grieves me to hear the prince occasionally talk of things which he has only read or heard of, and always with the same view in which they have been represented by others. He values my understanding and talents more highly than my heart, but I am proud of the latter only. It is the sole source of everything of our strength, happiness, and misery. All the knowledge I possess, everyone else can acquire, but my heart is exclusively my own. May 25. I have had a plan in my head of which I did not intend to speak to you until it was accomplished. Now that it has failed, I may as well mention it. I wished to enter the army and had long been desirous of taking the step. This indeed was the chief reason for my coming here with the prince, as he is a general in the service. I communicated my design to him during one of our walks together. He disapproved of it, and it would have been actual madness not to have listened to his reasons. June 11. Say what you will, I can remain here no longer. 
Why should I remain? Time hangs heavy upon my hands. The prince is as gracious to me as anyone could be, and yet I am not at my ease. There is indeed nothing in common between us. He is a man of understanding, but quite of the ordinary kind. His conversation affords me no more amusement than I should derive from the perusal of a well-written book. I shall remain here a week longer and then start again on my travels. My drawings are the best things I have done since I came here. The prince has a taste for the arts and would improve if his and would improve if his mind were not fettered by cold rules and mere technical ideas. I often lose patience when, with a glowing imagination, I am giving expression of art and nature. He interferes with learned suggestions and uses at random the technical phraseology of artists. July 16. Once more, I am a wanderer, a pilgrim through the world. But what else are you? July 18. Whither am I going? I will tell you in confidence. I am obliged to continue a fortnight longer here, and then I think it will be better for me to visit the mines in... But I am only deluding myself thus. I am only deluding myself thus. The fact is, I wish to be near Charlotte again. That is all. I smile at the suggestions of my heart and obey its dictates. July 29. No, no, it is yet well. All is well. I... Her husband, oh God, who gave me being, if thou, hadst, if thou hadst destined this happiness for me, my whole life would have been one continual thanksgiving. But I will not murmur. Forgive these tears. Forgive these fruitless wishes. She, my wife, oh, the very thought of folding that dearest of heaven's creatures in my arms. Dear Wilhelm, my whole frame feels convulsed when I see Albert put his arms around her slender waist. And shall I avow it? Why should I not, Wilhelm? She would have been happier with me than with him. Albert is not the man to satisfy the wishes of such a heart. He wants a certain sensibility. He wants, in short, their hearts do not beat in unison. How often, my dear friend, I'm reading a passage from some interesting book when my heart and Charlotte seem to meet, and in a hundred other instances when our sentiments were unfolded by the story of some fictitious character, have I felt that we were made for each other? But, dear Wilhelm, he loves her with his whole soul, and what does not such a love deserve? I have been interrupted by an insufferable visit. I have dried my tears and composed my thoughts. Adieu, my best friend. August 4. I am not alone, unfortunate. All men are disappointed in their hopes and deceived in their expectations. I have paid a visit to my good old woman under the lime trees. The eldest boy ran out to meet me. His exclamation of joy brought out his mother, but she had a very melancholy look. Her first word was, Alas, dear sir, my little John is dead. He was the youngest of her children. I was silent. And my husband has returned from Switzerland without any money. And if some kind people had not assisted him, he must have begged his way home. He was taken ill with fever on his journey. I could answer nothing but made the little one a present. She invited me to take some fruit. I complied and left the place with a sorrowful heart. August 21. My sensations are constantly changing. Sometimes a happy prospect opens before me, but alas, it is only for a moment. And then, when I am lost in reverie, I cannot help saying to myself, if Albert were to die, yes, she would become, and I should be... And so I pursue a chimera till it leads me to the edge of a precipice at which I shudder. 
When I pass through the same gate and walk along the same road which first conducted me to Charlotte, my heart sinks within me at the change that has since taken place. All, all is altered. No sentiment, no pulsation of my heart is the same. My, sensa my sensations are such as would occur to some departed prince whose spirit should return to visit the superb palace which he had built in happy times, adorned with, cost with costly magnificence, and left to a beloved son, but whose glory he should find departed and at halls deserted and is in ruins. September 3. I sometimes cannot understand how she can love another, how she dares love another when I love nothing in this world so completely, so devotedly as I love her when I know only her and have no other possession. September 4. It is even so. As nature puts on her autumn tints, it becomes autumn with me and around me. My leaves are sere and yellow and the neighboring trees are divested of their foliage. Do you remember my writing to you about a peasant boy shortly after my arrival here? I have just made inquiries about him in Valheim. They said he has been dismissed from his service and is now avoided by everyone. I met him yesterday on the road going to a neighboring village. I spoke to him and he told me his story. It interested me exceedingly, as you will easily understand when I repeat it to you. But why should I trouble you? Why should I not reserve all my sorrow for myself? Why should I continue to give you occasion to pity and blame me? But no matter, this also is part of my destiny. At first, the peasant lad answered my inquiries with a sort of subdued melancholy, which seemed to me the mark of a timid disposition. But as we grew to understand each other, he spoke with less reserve and openly confessed his faults and lamented his misfortune. I wish, my dear friend, I could give proper expression to his language. He told me with a sort of pleasurable recollection that after my departure, his passion for his mistress increased daily until at last he neither knew what he did nor what he said nor what was to become of him. He could neither eat nor drink nor sleep. He felt a sense of suffocation. He disobeyed all orders and forgot all commands involuntarily. He seemed as if pursued by an evil spirit. Till one day, knowing that his mistress had gone to an upper chamber, he had followed or rather been drawn after her. As she proved deaf to his entreaties, he had recourse to violence. He knows not what happened, but he called God to witness that his intentions to her were honorable and that he desired nothing more sincerely than that they should marry and pass their lives together. When he had come to this point, he began to hesitate, as if there was something which he had not the courage to utter, till at length he acknowledged with some confusion certain little confidences she had encouraged and liberties which she had allowed. He broke off two or three more times in his narration and assured me most earnestly that he had no wish to make her bad, as he termed it, for he loved her still as sincerely as ever, that the tale had never before escaped his lips, and was only now told to convince me that he was not utterly lost and abandoned. And here, my dear friend, I must commence the old song which you know I utter eternally. If I could only represent the man as he stood and stands now before me, I could... Could I only give his true expressions, you would feel compelled to sympathize in his fate. But enough. You, who know my misfortune and my disposition, can easily comprehend the attraction which draws me toward every unfortunate being, but particularly toward him whose story I have recounted. On perusing this letter a second time, I find I have omitted the conclusion of my tale, but it is easily supplied. She became reserved toward him, 
at the instigation of her brother who had long hated him and desired his expulsion from the house, fearing that his sister's second marriage might deprive his children of the handsome fortune they expected from her, and she is childless. He was dismissed at length, and the whole affair occasioned so much scandal that the mistress dared not take him back even if she had wished it. She has since hired another servant with whom they say her brother is equally displeased and whom she is likely to marry, but my informant assures me that he himself is determined not to survive such a catastrophe. The story is neither exaggerated nor embellished. Indeed, I have weakened and impaired it in the narration by the necessity of using the more refined expressions of society. This love, then, this constancy, this passion, is no poetical fiction. It is actual and dwells in its greatest purity among that class of mankind whom we term rude, uneducated. We are the educated, not the perverted. But read the story with attention, I implore you. I am tranquil today, for I have been employed upon this narration. You see by my writing that I am not so agitated as usual. I read and reread this tale, Wilhelm. It is the history of your friend. My fortune has been and will be similar, and I am neither half so brave nor half so determined as the poor wretch with whom I hesitate to compare myself. September 5. Charlotte has written a letter to her husband in the country where he was detained by business. It commenced, My dearest love, Return as soon as possible. I await you with a thousand raptures. A friend who arrived brought word that, for certain reasons, he could not return immediately. Charlotte's letter was not forwarded, and the same evening it fell into my hands. I read it and smiled. She asked the reason. What a heavenly treasure is imagination, I exclaimed. I fancied for a moment that this was written to me. She paused and seemed displeased. I was silent. September 6. It cost me much to part with the blue coat which I wore the first time I danced with Charlotte, but I could not possibly wear it any longer. But I have ordered a new one, precisely similar even to the collar and sleeves, as well as a new waistcoat and pantaloons. But it does not produce the same effect upon me. I know not how it is, but I hope in time I shall like it better. September 12. She has been absent for some days. She went to meet Albert. Today I visited her. She rose to receive me, and I kissed her hand most tenderly. A canary at the moment flew from a mirror and settled upon her shoulder. Here is a new friend, she observed, while she made him perch upon her hand. He is a present for the children. What a dear he is! Look at him! When I feed him, he flutters with his wings and pecks so nicely. He kisses me too, only look! She held the bird in her mouth and he pressed her sweet lips with so much fervor that he seemed to feel the excess of bliss which he enjoyed. He shall kiss you too, she added, and then she held the bird toward me. His little beak moved from her mouth to mine, and the delightful sensation seemed like the forerunner of the sweetest bliss. A kiss, I observed, does not seem to satisfy him. He wishes for food and seems disappointed by these unsatisfactory endearments. But he eats out of my mouth, she continued, and extended her lips to him containing seed, and she smiled with all the charm of a being who has allowed an innocent participation of her love. I turned my face away. She should not act thus. She ought not excite my imagination with such displays of heavenly innocence and happiness, nor awaken my heart from its slumbers in which it dreams of the worthlessness of life. And why not? Because she knows how much I love her. 
September 15. It makes me wretched, Wilhelm, to think that there should be men incapable of approaching the few things which possess a real value in life. You remember the walnut tree at S, under which I used to sit with Charlotte during my visits to the worthy old vicar. Those glorious trees, the various sight of which had so often filled my heart with joy, how they adorned and refreshed the parsonage yard with their wide extended branches, and how pleasing was our remembrance of the good old pastor by whose hands they were planted so many years ago. The schoolmaster has frequently mentioned his name. He had it from his grandfather. He must have been a most excellent man, and under the shade of those old trees his memory was ever venerated by me. The schoolmaster informed us yesterday, with tears in his eyes, that those trees had been felled. Yes, cut to the ground. I could in my wrath have slain the monster who struck the first stroke, and I must endure this, I who, if I had two such trees in my own court and one had died from old age, should have wept with real affliction. But there is some comfort left, such a thing as sentiment. The whole village murmurs at the misfortune, and I hope the vicar's wife will soon find, by the cessation of the villagers' presence, how much she has wounded the feelings of the neighborhood. It was she who did it, the wife of the present incumbent, for our old man is dead, a tall, sickly creature who is so far right to disregard the world as the world totally disregards her. The silly being affects to be learned, pretends to examine the canonical books, the canonical books, leads her a toward the new to toward the new fashion reformation of Christ of Christendom, moral and critical, and shrugs up her shoulders at the mention of Lavater's enthusiasm. Her health is destroyed on account of which she is prevented from having any enjoyment here below. Only such a creature could have cut down my walnut trees. I can never pardon it. Hear her reasons. The falling leaves made the court wet and dirty. The branches obstructed the light. Boys threw stones at the nuts when they were ripe, and the noise affected her nerves. It disturbed her profound meditations when she was weighing the difficulties of Kennicott, Simler, and Michaelis. Finding that all the parish, particularly the old people, were displeased, I asked why they allowed it. Ah, sir, they replied. When the steward orders, what can we poor peasants do? But one thing has happened well. The steward and the vicar who for, for once thought to reap some advantage from the caprices of his wife intended to divide the trees between them. The revenue office being informed of it received an old claim to the ground where the trees had stood and sold them to the highest bidder. There they still lie on the ground. If... Thanks so much for listening to this third segment reading of Goethe's The Sorrows of Young Werther. I hope you enjoyed the reading. You may have heard in the background a little bit of noise from my grandson and his dog. I think at one point I, I heard them as I was reading, but um, sorry about that is all I can say. And I hope it won't be too distracting for you. But in any event, thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time. July 19. I shall see her today. I exclaim with delight when I rise in the morning and look out with gladness of heart at the bright, beautiful sun. I shall see her today. And then I have no further wish to form. All, all is included in that one thought. July 20. I cannot assent to your proposal that I should accompany the ambassador to... 
I do not love subordination, and we all know that he is a rough, disagreeable person to be connected with. You say my mother wishes me to be employed. I could not help laughing at that. Am I not sufficiently employed? And is it not in reality the same whether I shell peas or count lentils? The world runs on from one folly to another, and the man who, solely from regard of the opinion of others and without any wish for necessity of his own, toils after gold, honor, or any other phantom is no better than a fool. July 24. You insist so much on my not neglecting my drawing that it would be as well for me to say nothing as to confess how little I have lately done. I never felt happier. I never understood nature better, even down to the various stem or smallest blade of grass, and yet I am unable to express myself. My powers of execution are so weak, everything seems to swim and float before me so that I cannot make a clear, bold outline. But I fancy I should succeed better if I had some clay or wax to model. I shall try if this slate of mine continues much longer and will take to modeling if I only need dough. I have commenced Charlotte's portrait three times and have as often disgraced myself. This is the more annoying and I was formerly very happy in taking likenesses. I have since sketched her profile and must content myself with that. July 25. Yes, dear Charlotte, I will order and arrange everything. Only give me more commissions, the more the better. One thing, however, I must request. Use no more writing sand with the dear notes you send me. Today, I raised your letter hastily to my lips, and it set my teeth on edge. July 26. I have often determined not to see her so frequently, but who could keep such a resolution? Every day I am exposed to the temptation and promise faithfully that tomorrow I will really stay away. But when tomorrow comes, I find some irresistible reason for seeing her. And before I can account for it, I am with her again. Either she has said on the previous evening, you will be sure to call tomorrow. And who could stay away then? Or she gives me some commission and I find it essential to take her the answer in person or the day is fine, and I walk to Valheim, and when I am there, it is only half a league further to her. I am within the charmed atmosphere, and soon find myself at her side. My grandmother used to tell us a story of a mountain of lodestone. When any vessels came near it, they were instantly deprived of their ironwork. The nails flew to the mountain, and the unhappy crew perished amidst the disjointed planks. July 30. Albert is arrived, and I must take my departure. Were he the best and noblest of men, I, in every respect his inferior, could not endure to see him in possession of such a perfect being. Possession! Enough, Wilhelm. Her betrothed is here, a fine, worthy fellow whom one cannot help liking. Fortunately, I was not present at their meeting. It would have broken my heart. And he is so considerate. He has not given Charlotte one kiss in my presence. Heaven reward him for it. I must love him for the respect with which he treats her. He shows a regard for me, but for this I suspect I am more indebted to Charlotte than to his own fancy for me. Women have a delicate tact in such manners, and it should be so. They cannot always succeed in keeping two rivals on terms with each other, but when they do, they are the, they are the only gainers. I cannot help esteeming Albert. The coolness of his temper contrasts strongly with the impetuosity of mine, which I cannot conceal. He has a great deal of feeling and is fully sensible of the treasure he possesses in Charlotte. He is free from ill humor, which you know is the fault I detest most.' 
He regards me as a man of sense, and my attachment to Charlotte and the interest I take in all that concerns her augment his triumph and his love. I shall not inquire whether he may not at times tease her with some little jealousies, as I know that were I in his place, I should not be entirely free from such sensations. But be that as it may, my pleasure with Charlotte is over. Call it folly or infatuation, what signifies a name? The thing speaks for itself. Before Albert came, I knew all that I know now. I knew I could make no pretensions to her, nor did I offer any, that is, as far as it was possible, in the presence of so much loveliness, not to pant for its enjoyment. And now, behold me like a silly fellow staring with astonishment when another comes in and deprives me of my love. I bite my lips and feel infinite scorn for those who tell me to be resigned because there is no help for it. Let me escape from the yoke of such silly subterfuges. I ramble through the woods and when I return to Charlotte and find Albert sitting by her side in the summer house in the garden, I am unable to bear it, behave like a fool and commit a thousand extravagances. For heaven's sake, said Charlotte today, let us have no more scenes like those of last night. You terrify me when you are so violent. Between ourselves, I am always away now when he visits her, and I feel delighted when I find her alone. August 8. Believe me, dear Wilhelm, I did not allude to you when I spoke so severely of those who advise resignation of inevitable fate. I did not think it possible for you to indulge such a sentiment. But in fact, you are right. I only suggest one objection. In this world, one is seldom reduced to make a selection between two alternatives. There are as many varieties of conduct and opinion as there are turns of feature between an aquiline nose and a flat one. You will, therefore, permit me to concede your entire argument and yet contrive means to escape your dilemma. Your position is this. I hear you say, either you have hopes of, of obtaining Charlotte or you have none. Well, in the first case, Pursue your course and press on to the fulfillment of your wishes. In the second, be a man and shake off a miserable passion which will enervate and destroy you. My dear friend, this is well and easily said. But would you require a wretched being whose life was slowly wasting under a lingering disease to dispatch himself at once by the stroke of a dagger? Does not the very disorder which consumes his strength deprive him of the courage to effect his deliverance? You may answer me, if you please, with a similar analogy. analogy. Who would not prefer the amputation of an arm to the peril of life by doubt and procrastination? But I know not if I am right, and let us believe these comparisons. Enough. There are moments, Wilhelm, when I could rise up and shake it off, and when, if only I knew where to go, I could fly from this place. That same evening... My diary, which I have for some time neglected, came before me today, and I am amazed to see how deliberately I have entangled myself, myself step by step. To have seen my position so clearly, and yet to have acted so like a child, even still I behold the result plainly, and yet have no thought of acting with greater prudence. August 10. If I were not a fool, I could spend the happiest and most delightful life here. So many agreeable circumstances, and of a kind to ensure a worthy man's happiness, are seldom united. Alas, I feel it too sensibly. The heart alone makes our happiness. To be admitted into this most charming family, to be loved by the father as a son, by the children as a father, and by Charlotte, then the noble Albert, 
who never disturbs my happiness by any appearance of ill humor, receiving me with the heartiest affection and loving me, next to Charlotte, better than all the world. Wilhelm, you would be delighted to hear us in our rambles and conversations about Charlotte. Nothing in the world could be more absurd than our connection, and yet the thought of it often moves me to tears. He tells me sometimes of her excellent mother, how upon her deathbed she had committed her house and children to Charlotte and had given Charlotte herself in charge to him, how since that time a new spirit had taken possession of her, how in care and anxiety for their for their welfare she became a real mother to them, how every moment of her time was devoted to some labor of love in their behalf, and yet her mirth and cheerfulness had never forsaken her. I walk by his side, pluck flowers by the way, arrange them carefully into a nosegay, then fling them into the first stream I pass and watch them as they float away gently. I forget whether I told you that Albert is to remain here. He has received a government appointment with a very good salary, and I understand he is high in favor at court. I have met few persons so punctual and methodical in business. August 12th. Certainly, Albert is the best fellow in the world. I had a strange sense with him yesterday. I went to take leave of him, for I took it into my head to spend a few days in these mountains from where I now write to you. As I was walking up this, as I was walking up and down his room, my eye fell upon his pistols. Lend me those pistols, said I, for my journey. By all means, he replied, if you will take the trouble to load them, for they only hang there for form. I took down one of them, and he continued, ever since I was near suffering for my extreme caution, I will have nothing to do with such things. I was curious to hear the story. I was staying, said he, some three months ago at a friend's house in the country. I had a brace of pistols with me, unloaded, and I slept without any anxiety. One rainy afternoon, I was sitting by myself, doing nothing, when it occurred to me, I do not know how, that the house might be attacked that we might require the pistols, that we might, in short, you know, how we go on fancying when we have nothing better to do. I gave the pistols to the servant to clean and load. He was playing with the maid and trying to frighten her when the pistol went off. God knows how. The ramrod was in the barrel, and it went straight through her right hand and shattered the thumb. I had to endure all the lamentation and to pay the surgeon's bill. So since that time, I have kept all weapons unloaded. But, my dear friend, what is the use of prudence? We can never be on our guard against all possible dangers. However, now you must know I can tolerate all men till they come to however, for it is self-evident that every universal rule must have, his, must have its exceptions. But he is so exceedingly accurate that if he only fancies he has said a word too precipitate or too general or only half true, he never ceases to qualify to modify, to extenuate, till at last he appears to have said nothing at all. Upon this occasion, Albert was deeply immersed in his subject. I ceased to listen to him and became lost in reverie. When a sudden motion, with a sudden motion, I pointed the mouth of the pistol to my forehead over the right eye. What do you mean? cried Albert, turning back the pistol. It is not loaded, said I, and even if not, he answered with impatience. What can you mean? I cannot comprehend how a man can be so mad as to shoot himself, and the bare idea of it shocks me.
But why should anyone, said I, speaking of an action, venture to pronounce it mad or wise or good or bad? What is the meaning of all this? Have you carefully studied the secret motives of our actions? Do you understand? Can you explain the causes which occasion them and make them inevitable? If you can, you will be less hasty with your decision. But you will allow, said Albert, that some actions are criminal. Let them spring from whatever motives they may. I granted it and shrugged my shoulders. But still, my good friend, I continued, there are some exceptions here too. Theft is a crime, but the man who commits it from extreme poverty with no design but to save his family from perishing, is he an object of pity or of punishment? Who shall throw the first stone at a husband who, in the heat of just resentment, sacrifices his faithless wife and her per and her perfidious seducer, or at the young maiden who, in her weak hour of rapture, forgets herself in the impetuous joys of love? Even our laws, cold and cruel as they are, relent in such cases and withhold their punishment. That is quite another thing, said Albert, because a man under the influence of violent passion loses all power of reflection and is regarded as intoxicated or insane. Oh, you people of sound understandings, I replied, smiling, are ever ready to exclaim extravagance and madness and intoxication. You moral men are so calm and so subdued. You abhor the drunken man and detest the extravagant. You pass by like the like the Levite and thank God like the Pharisee that you are not like one of them. I have been more than once intoxicated. My passions have always bordered on extravagance. I am not ashamed to confess it, for I have learned by my own experience that all extraordinary men who have accomplished great and astonishing actions have ever been decried by the world as drunken or insane. And in private life too, is it not intolerable that no one can undertake the execution of a noble or generous deed without giving rise to the exclamation that the doer is intoxicated or mad? Shame upon you. Ye sages, this is another of your extravagant humors, said Albert. You always exaggerate a case, and in this matter you are undoubtedly wrong, for we were speaking of suicide, which you compare with great actions, when it is impossible to regard it as anything but a weakness. It is much easier to die than to bear a life of misery with fortitude. I was on the point of breaking off this conversation, for nothing puts me so completely out of patience as the utterance of a wretched commonplace when I am talking from my inmost heart. However, I composed myself, for I had often heard the same observation with, with sufficient vexation, and I answered him, therefore with a little warmth. You call this a weakness. Beware of being led astray by appearances. When a nation which has long groaned under the intolerable yoke of a tyrant rises at last and throws off its chains, do you call that weakness? The man who, to rescue his house from the flames, finds his physical strength redoubled so that he lifts burdens with ease, which in the absence of excitement, he could scarcely move. He who, under the rage of an insult, attacks and puts to flight half a score of his enemies, are such persons to be called weak? My good friend, if resistance be strength, how can the highest degree of resistance be a weakness? Albert looked steadfastly at me and said, Pray, forgive me, but I do not see that the examples you have adduced bear any relation to the question. Very likely, I answered, for I, for I have often been told that my style of illustration borders a little on the absurd. On the absurd. 
but let us see if we cannot place the matter in another point of view by inquiring what can be a man's state of mind who resolves to free himself from the burden of life, a burden often so pleasant to bear, for we cannot otherwise fairly reason upon the subject. Human nature, I continued, has its limits. It is able to endure a certain degree of joy, sorrow, and pain, but becomes annihilated as soon as this measure is exceeded. The question, therefore, is not whether a man is strong or weak, but whether he is able to endure the measure of his sufferings. The suffering may be moral or physical, and in my opinion, it is just as absurd to call a man a coward who destroys himself as to call a man a coward who dies of a malignant fever." Paradox, all paradox, exclaimed Albert. Not so paradoxical as you imagine, I replied. You allow that we designate a disease as mortal when nature is so severely attacked and her strength so far exhausted that she cannot possibly recover her former condition under any change that may take place. Now, my good friend, apply this to the mind. Observe a man in his natural isolated condition. Consider how ideas work and how impressions fasten on him till at length a violent passion seizes him, destroying all his powers of calm reflection and utterly ruining him. It is in vain that a man of sound mind and cool temper understands the condition of such a wretched being. In vain he counsels him. He can no more communicate his own wisdom to him than a healthy man can instill his strength into the invalid by whose bedside he is seated. Albert thought this too general. I reminded him of a girl who had drowned herself a short time previously, and I related her, her history. She was a good creature who had grown up in the narrow sphere of household industry and weekly appointed labor, one who knew no pleasure beyond indulging in a walk on Sundays, arrayed in her best attire, accompanied by her friends, or perhaps joining in the dance now and then at some festival and chatting away her spare hours with a neighbor, discussing the scandal or the quarrels of the village, trifles sufficient to occupy her heart. At length, the warmth of her nature is influenced by certain new and unknown wishes. Inflamed by the flatteries of men, her former pleasures become by degrees insipid, till at length she meets with a youth to whom she is attracted by an indescribable feeling. Upon him she now rests all her hopes. She forgets the world around her. She sees, hears, desires nothing but him, and him only. He alone occupies all her thoughts. Uncorrupted by the idle indulgence of an enervating vanity, her affection moving steadily towards its object, she hopes to become his and to realize in an everlasting union with him all that happiness which she sought, all that bliss for which she longed. His repeated promises confirm her hopes, embraces, and endearments which increase the ardor of her desires, overmaster her soul. She floats in a dim, delusive anticipation of her happiness, and her feelings become excited to their uttermost tension. She stretches out her arms finally to embrace the object of all her wishes, and her lover forsakes her. Stunned and bewildered, she stands upon a precipice. All is dark around her. No prospect, no hope, no consolation, forsaken by him in whom her existence was centered. She sees nothing of the wide world before her, thinks nothing of the many individuals who might supply the void in her heart. She feels herself deserted, forsaken by the world, and blinded and impelled by the agony which wrings her soul, she plunges into the deep to end her sufferings and the broad embrace of death.
See here, Albert, the history of thousands, and tell me, is not this a case of physical infirmity? Nature has no way to escape from the labyrinth. Her powers are exhausted. She can contend no longer, and the poor soul must die. Shame upon him who can look on calmly and exclaim, the foolish girl. She should have waited. She should have allowed time to wear off the impression. Her despair would have been softened, and she would have found another lover to comfort her. One might as well say, the fool, to die of a fever. Why did he not wait until his strength was restored, till his blood came calm? All would then have gone well, and he would have been alive now. Albert, who could not see the justice of the comparison, offered some further objections and, amongst others, urged that I had taken the case of a mere ignorant girl. By how many, but how many, but how any man of sense of more enlarged views and experience could be excused, he was unable to comprehend. My friend, I exclaimed, man is but man, and whatever be the extent of his reasoning powers, they are of little avail when passion rages within and he feels himself confined by the narrow limits of nature. It were better then, but we will talk of this some other time, I said, and caught up my hat. Alas, my heart was full, and we parted without conviction on either side. How rarely in this world do men understand each other. August 15. There can be no doubt that in this world nothing is so indispensable as love. I observed that Charlotte could not lose me without a pang, and the very children have but one wish, that is, that I should visit them again tomorrow. I went this afternoon to tune Charlotte's piano, but I could not do it, for the little ones insisted on my telling them a story, and Charlotte herself urged me to satisfy them. I waited upon them at tea, and they are now as fully contented with me as with Charlotte, and I told them my very best tale of the princess who was waited upon by dwarfs. I improved myself by this exercise, and am quite surprised at the impression my stories create. If I sometimes invent an incident which I forget upon the next narration, they remind me directly that the story was different before, so that I now endeavor to relate with exactness the same anecdote in the same monotonous tone which never changes. I find by this how much an author injures his works by altering them, even though they may be improved in a poetical point of view. The first impression is readily received. We are so constituted that we believe the most incredible things, and once they are engraved upon the memory, woe to him who would endeavor to efface them. August 18. Must it ever be thus, that the source of our happiness must also be the fountain of our misery? The full and ardent sentiment which animated my heart with the love of nature, overwhelming me with a torrent of delight, and which brought all paradise before which brought all paradise before me, has now become an insupportable torment, a demon which perpetually pursues and harasses me. When in bygone days I gazed from these rocks upon yonder mountains across the river and upon the green flowery valley before me and saw all nature budding and bursting around, the hills clothed from foot to peak with tall, thick forest trees, the valleys in all their varied windings shaded with the loveliest woods and the soft river gliding along amongst the lipsing reeds, mirroring the beautiful clouds which the soft evening breeze wafted across the sky. 
When I heard the groves about me, melodious with the music of birds, and saw the million swarms of insects dancing in the last golden beams of the sun, whose setting rays awoke the humming beetles from their grassy beds, whilst the subdued tumult around directed my attention to the ground, and there I observed the arid rock compelled to yield nutriment to the dry moss, whilst the hearth flourished upon the barren sands below me, all this di displayed to me the inner warmth which animates all nature, and filled and glowed within my heart. I felt myself exalted by this overflowing fullness to the perception of the Godhead, and the glorious forms of an infinite universe became visible to my soul. Stupendous mountains encompassed me, abysses yawned at my feet, and cataracts fell headlong down before me. Impetuous rivers rolled through the plain, and rocks and mountains resounded from afar. In the depths of the earth I saw innumerable powers in motion, and multiplying to infinity, whilst upon its surface and beneath the heavens there teemed ten thousand varieties of living creatures— Everything around is alive with an infinite number of forms, while mankind fly for security to their petty houses from the shelter of which they rule in their imaginations over the wide extended universe. Poor fool! In whose petty estimation all things are little, from the in from the inaccessible mountains across the desert which no mortal foot has trod, far as the confines of the unknown ocean, breeds the spirit of the eternal creator, and every atom to which he has given existence finds favor in his sight. Ah, how often at that time has the flight of a bird soaring above my head inspired me with the desire of being transported to the shores of the immeasurable waters, there to quaff the pleasures of life from the foaming goblet of the infinite, and to partake, if but for a moment even, with the confined powers of my soul, the beatitude of the Creator who accomplishes all things in himself and through himself. My dear friend, the bare recollection of those hours still consoles me. Even this effort to recall those ineffable sensations and give them utterance exalts my soul above itself and makes me doubly feel intensity of my present anguish. It is as if a, if a curtain had been drawn from before my eyes, and instead of prospects of eternal life, the abyss of an ever-open grave yawned before me. Can we say of anything that it exists when all passes away, when time, with, with the speed of a storm, carries all things onward, and our transistory existence, hurried along by the torrent, is either swallowed up by the waves or dashed against the rocks? There is not a moment but praise upon you and upon all around you, not a moment in which you do not yourself become a destroyer. The most innocent walk deprives of life thousands of poor insects. One step destroys the fabric of the industrious ant and converts a little world into chaos. No, it is not the great and rare calamities of the world, the floods which sweep away whole villages, the earthquakes which swallow up our towns that affect me. My heart is wasted by the thought of the destructive power which lies concealed in every part of universal nature. Nature has formed nothing that does not consume itself and every object near it, so that, surrounded by earth and air and all the active powers, I wander on my way with aching heart, and the universe is to me a fearful monster, forever devouring its own offspring. August 21. In vain do I stretch out my arms toward her when I awaken in the morning from my weary slumbers. In vain do I seek her 
In vain do I seek for her at night in my bed when some innocent dream has happily deceived me and placed her near me in the fields when I have seized her hand and covered it with countless kisses and when I feel for her in the half confusion of sleep with the happy sense that she is near tears flow from my oppressed heart and bereft of all comfort I weep over my future woes. August 22. What a misfortune, Wilhelm. My active spirits have degenerated into contended indolence. I cannot be idle, and yet I am unable to set to work. I cannot think. I have no longer any feeling for the beauties of nature, and books are distasteful to me. Once we give ourselves up, we are totally lost. Many a time and oft I wish I were a common laborer, that awakening in the morning I might have but one prospect, one pursuit, one hope. For the day which has dawned, I often envy Albert when I see him buried in a heap of papers and parchments, and I fancy I should be happy were I in his place. Often impressed with this feeling, I have been on the point of writing to you and to the minister for the appointment at the embassy, which you think I might obtain. I believe I might procure it. The minister has long shown a regard for me and has frequently urged me to seek employment. It is the business of an hour only. Now and then the fable of those horse, the fable of the horse recurs to me. Weary of liberty, he suffered himself to be saddled and bridled and was ridden to death for his pains. I know not what to determine upon, for it is not his anxiety for change, the consequence of that restless spirit which would pursue me equally in every situation of life. 